Okay, first things first. The list of featured guitarists on Brian Beller's new album, Scenes from the Flood, is astounding. We're talking about Joe Satriani. We're talking about Guthrie Govan. We're talking about John Petrucci. We're talking about Mike Dawes and many others, including Rick Masalem, Neely Brosh, Janet Fetter, Jamie Kime. The thing is, Brian Beller is a bassist but he's also a musical mastermind and a genius composer and producer. And that alone was enough to be like, of course, Brian, let's have you on the show and show us how you created this incredible record. Also, Brian's a friend of mine. I worked with him with uh, Brendan Small. And I've just known him for years. When I first saw him, he was playing for Mike Keneally. This was in the 2000s, and he was also overachiever that he is. Not just playing bass for Keneally, but also a vice president at SWR. And you might know Brian for forming the Aristocrats with Guthrie Govan and Marco Miniman and touring with Satriani. But anyhow, so... Yeah, every once in a while, you know, we have a monster bassist on the show. Four-string friends, five-string sometimes, depending on which bass Brian is holding. But what this turned into was something incredibly deeper and more expansive, kind of like the record in question. Scenes from the Flood is available at brianbeller.com and so many other places, and it's epic. It's basically a four-act musical odyssey, kind of designed for the vinyl set, which, by the way, if you have a musician friend, I'm just telling you right now, Christmas shopping, Hanukkah, holiday shopping, guitar player, or even not just a guitar player, but any musician friend and you don't know what to get them, grab this double vinyl set, four sides, incredible artwork and booklet. The CD version is killer as well. And so we're gonna get heavily into how Brian created this record. The thing that surprised me though is kind of like when you go through a doorway and you're expecting a big room on the other side or whatever with some cool stuff in it and then your mind is blown because you actually entered something so vast you just never knew it existed. Like it's a whole other world. And well that was kind of my experience interviewing Brian. We start off with a little bit of slap bass. Get that out of the way with this cool song. Brian shows us how he created that and he also gives you some tips which I find very helpful as a guitar player who thinks he's a bass player, that's me. Tracking, Brian helps us with some tips on how to actually play bass and record bass. Then we get into the album and the guitar players. Brian's actually one of the guitar players on this record. But also, when we're out there at Brian's secret hideaway in Southern California, we also get into something I've always been fascinated with, which is how does he do it? 
Brian is one of those super effective people, and I think we kind of got an idea of how a type A, super detail-oriented, high-achieving person such as Beller, how does he do it? How is he wired? And then it goes deeper than that. So if you stick with today's episode, we're gonna actually delve into ways that perhaps you can change your surroundings if you have the right intentionality. If you uh, realize there are two meanings to the word disillusionment. Anyhow, my name is Jude Gold. Today's episode is once again brought to you by Guitar Player Magazine and GuitarPlayer.com. Guitar player, play better, sound better. This is episode 102. We're going to get right to it. Hop in that chopper. Thanks again to Zoom for the recorder. I hope you all listened to those epic stories and jams with Jennifer Batten in the last episode. And again, big thanks to Brian Beller for going deep on this episode and showing us all how to make a record and how to perhaps shape your life how you might want to shape it. All right. It's so that satisfying. Is, that is not easy to, to keep together because it just wants to, you know, I mean, you're talking about, yeah. you know, math there. But, uh, you know, what is it? A little run like hell. Can I film a little bit of that? Or uh-huh. just, this is, uh, this is online I mean, already, you know. I know, it's just... show us a little bit of what you were doing on the everything and nothing. so on everything and nothing i mean it's it, you know that is uh the main baseline is just just making sure i had that really good yeah. and it was just going through the whole track the, the only time it ever changes is it goes to the four chord yeah. and then flat three and i never played any yeah. fills on that because there's just so much going on above it there's there's keyboard sequencing and there's 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 other stuff so the other thing would be, uh, so like the, uh, I had this, this same sound, I would be like using just octaves. Like that is the first melody line. So yeah. uh, I, of course you're in the studio. I took great care and recorded every one of those individually. So I wasn't trying to transition from. Uh, and on and on 
going on. Now, then there's a wah part. And that's your little TC uh, flashback. That's all battle. the flashback delay set yeah. manually, tracked live, printed. No, it's like, you know, there was that delay no wasn't added in tempo. post. No time tempo, no nothing. I just did it that way. You just way. matched it to the. I matched it to the track, got as close as I could, and then just played as much as I could, you know, together and and got it. And that one just like Pink Floyd, probably just like they did it in the old days. (laughs) Eighteen? When did they? Yeah, yeah, nineteen seventy-one, seventy-nine. And then uh, there was, you know, this bit. There it is. I finally got it right the last time. <laughs> this is the bassiest, bassy yeah. thing on the whole album. You know, the album's 88 minutes long, and this is the only song where the bass is, is actually carrying the, yeah. the lead. So just to take it all the way home, since we're doing that now. Yeah. Uh, then there would be this. This is the chorus. The... This is what I get for not having played this stuff. Oh, in, uh, yeah, it sounds beautiful. I didn't realize that was the Dunlop Wah. I know that you have credited is. that on your album, the Dunlop Bass Wah, but I thought maybe... No, no, a, this is the this is how sound. I did it. I did yeah. it up here in my bedroom uh, through an Mbox yeah. Mini. Oh, That's what's really? on the record. <laughs> yeah, the bass wahs are cool on guitar, too. I like the bass wahs too because they're white. They look cool, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, I, you and know, I use them on a guitar too. A completely different vibe than the other stuff. Yeah, it's so cool. weird playing this stuff again. You know how it is when you record something yeah. and you haven't played it in forever. Sounds beautiful, man. Yeah, so I got to ask you as a guitar player, so many guitar players who track bass, I'm one of them. What are your tips for, like, I can play bass and, you know, I I can slap bass, I can do finger, I can play with pick. But as far as tracking, what are your tips as far as, like, getting the basic recording going i don't always know if i get the best sound for bass yeah just going straight straight in for my demos or whatever what can people do if they're not an experienced bass player yeah (laughs) we'll turn this around eventually and ask me what it was like for me to track the guitar on the album not knowing what i was doing (laughs) but uh god you know you just want to make sure that every note has a nice clean strike right you know what I mean? Yeah, that's uh, totally. You, you, you want to make sure that you're not, unless you're trying to get some kind of like weird strike noise, you know? Yeah. Uh, you really want the notes to be kind of even and round. And and that usually involves a lighter touch than you imagine, even though they're yeah. bigger strings. Uh, so you want to make sure that the, that you have a lot of gain uh, and that you don't need to kind of like nail it in order to get the thing that you want, unless nailing it is the sound. I think maybe in a lot of ways, is it kind of the opposite of guitar? I mean, yeah, some guitarists have a lead sound all the time and they've got the high gain thing going and they work it with the volume control on the guitar. That's like the Satriani thing. But, uh, you know, with bass, you really just want to have a lot of headroom at your disposal so that you can play evenly when you want. Yeah. 
each one of those things. I'm yeah. barely touching the string. Yeah. Now, if I really get on it, I can. Right. I mean, that's all there. Uh, and then you have to make sure that you have actually the other important part, especially with bass, is good compression. Right. Because bass, those frequencies are the low frequencies will really make a signal jump if you get on it, even more so than a guitar. So you need to make sure that that you have some kind of compression going in during tracking. I think is really one of the big secrets of getting a good uh, a good recorded bass sound. And you know, if you get an Apollo interface, it comes with the with the Neve. 1073 module for the you know for the mic pre the going into a board and then it's got a great 1176 compressor plugin uh the funny thing about this bass that i'm playing right now this uh this mic lola it's kind of designed to be kind of specter ish because it's got an emg uh bqc preamp and emg 40 dc pickups is it's designed to be very compressing and even yeah yeah Whereas, you know, if you if you were going to take a, say, a, a more traditional... Now you're switching. Jazz bass, which is what this is. Yeah, it looks like... This is a five-string active jazz with a maple uh, fingerboard. Yeah, that's a... That's the classic tone. Yeah. And so, you know, you can do this here with, like, if this would be the sound of this thing on this instrument... You know, you can just hear it's just a it's just a completely different beast. Uh, but this is kind of more of a classic studio instrument. There's a reason why people play P basses and jazz basses, right? You know. Yeah. That's great. Let's get out of drop D. I'm gonna spend the whole yeah, day there. I think my attack was a little too heavy when I was tracking yeah. bass well, or when I tracked bass. Yeah. I mean, and now the other thing is that when you can get into bass techniques. This is not this podcast yeah. is not no bass is safe. But uh, you know, if this is now the same thing. Same yeah. thing. Back awesome. to the beginning. Cool. So, you know, uh, and I, I have a compressor on the end of the board at all times. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, you... you know, I, so the live element is going to get a little bit of that kind of evenness. I want the front of house guy to have that ready. So that if I go, hear how that doesn't like completely take off? Yeah. Man, it sounds great. What is that compressor? This is an, a Demeter Opto Compulator. Sweet. Well, thanks yeah. for that, man. Yep. Good all right. Tip. So enough bass bullshit. <laughs>
think is the second track of this incredibly ambitious album that I'm holding in my hands right here, which is actually available on double vinyl. And it's got how many pages is this booklet? It's a 24-page deluxe booklet that you get with the uh, with the big vinyl package. It's and, beautiful, uh, man. And it's um, and the, the CD has two 20-page booklets. Uh, it's, yeah. It's uh, I mean, you know, go big or stay home, right? Man, you went big, and and the album is just beautiful. As we're gonna get into hearing all these different tracks, completely ambitious. It's like four parts, like four sides of a of a double vinyl set. So it's yeah. a total musical epic odyssey and it's a guitar player's just feast all you can eat smorgasbord of like the most amazing guitar heroes <laughs> you got like joe satriani rick masalem janet fetter guthrie govin mike keneally neely brosh i know a lot of these people including john petrucci rick masalem jamie keim julian coriel son of larry coriel but does he play? Or? Julian Coriel only <laughs> sings la di da background vocals on one song. He just That's happened to be at the studio when that happened. But I ran into him on the airplane, which was a funny story. Him yeah. and Gallagher, the three of us, sitting like in the same little proximity. Like Gallagher, the watermelon smashing <laughs> yeah. comedian? It was like That's the most truly r- weird. It was the most random For a second there, I thought you were like, what, you, you mean like from Oasis? Or it was, no, no, actually Gallagher. Gallagher. <laughs> Talking about the biz. They, yeah, it was, that was a flight from Chicago to LA. Yeah. Um, this... Griff that's, Peters, that's super weird. yeah. Teddy Kumpel. Teddy Kumpel's from New York City. He's an amazing, amazing player. He plays yeah. Joe Jackson in, in Joe Jackson's touring band. Darren Charles, Jake Howsam Lowe. Yep. D- Darren Charles. Uh, I mean, we should just go through yeah. the list and say what yeah. they do, right? Oh yeah. These so, are. We're gonna get into. We're gonna listen to samples of some of these players. Yeah. Like, and the track we've been hearing right now. I love this first riff. Is uh, Volunteer State. Mm. And right away, I was like, I think that's Satriani before I got the notes, and sure enough. And it's a beautiful, epic riff. The key of Mixolydian, yeah. <laughs> which oh, yeah. I always love. And uh, you can actually hear some of Joe's Hendrixy side in there, too. A lot of people don't realize how tasteful and just bluesy and Hendrixy. You know, he has gone all the way into the Hendrix thing. That's what people don't really, not everybody knows. And of course, if you go see him on the Experience Hendrix tour, you'll know, because like he's up there and he just, it just sounds ridiculous it sounds so good like i just saw their show uh in anaheim and they did i don't live today and you know that's a cool song everybody knows the drum they all that everybody knows that part in the chorus i don't live today but there's a part near the end of the song where everything breaks down and jimmy just does feedback for like 45 seconds and just like when do you ever have an excuse really to do that as a guitarist you know just you know that's it's almost passe right but if you're playing that song and you're on the experience hendrix tour you can go all the way in and joe satriani went all the way in and just was so (laughs) glorious just listening to do him every little nuance of the feedback and that little bit uh he had such masterful control over it. it was wonderful so yeah he has gone all the way into the hendrix thing and but the funny thing about Volunteer State is when I finished the demo and I heard it back and I was like, oh, wow, Joe Satriani would sound great on this. It wasn't because I was thinking, oh, he can do his Hendrix thing on this. It was just yeah. because I thought this is a Satriani kind of feeling groove and form and melody. And it's a very optimistic song because the start of the album is very optimistic in the storytelling aspect of it. And I thought, boy, it would be kind of a crime against the music not to ask Joe to do this. And so I asked him to do it. And he said, oh, yes, I'd love to do it. And then... He took two months with it. 
he had a, took a month with it and, and wrote me back. He was like, I'm still kind of working out what I want to do with this. And I'm thinking to myself, why? It's they're, they're, it's pretty simple. I'm thinking there's like only a, there's a melody and a background part and that's kind of it. But that's not how Joe Satriani works and people don't realize that. They hear these simple songs and just think, oh yeah, he just lays it down, you know, kicks back, jams out. Yeah, man, it's, it's not like that at all. He is super obsessive about little things in the studio. And he really, really pays close attention to melodic phrasing and what a melody is. And he took all that time to not only refine the melody that was part of the demo that I gave him, he actually shifted a couple notes around. It's like, you know, that was yeah. ideal. But he added all these layers that were not there, acoustic guitars and uh, a couple of harmonies that weren't there. He added uh, banjo. Uh, a banjo. <laughs> that was a part that I had on regular guitar. He changed it to a banjo. Here it is. You're either going to love it or you're going to hate it. But this is what I thought was right. I really wanted to make it kind of a, an epic journey for the guitar. And so I flew in all the tracks into my mix. And I was just like, and the first thing I heard was, oh, my God, that is a really aggressive Strat with a Univibe effect on it. And yeah. he didn't send me a DI. It was like, right. here it is. Did it have, was it dry or did it have effects on it? It, it, it only had the Univibe. Just the Univibe. Other yeah. than that, it was, it was dry. Right, and right. so it was like this really good. And he, and, and he sent me... We talked about it, and he was like, I just wanted to send you something. I felt this was the right sound, and I wanted to make sure that it could survive yeah. any mix. <laughs> well, so. it's, it's Yeah, it sure sounds wonderful, warm, yeah. organic. And, you know, it's interesting what you're saying, like, about him being meticulous. When we had Steve Vai on this show, he said the same thing, because he was taking lessons from Joe when they were teenagers, and mm -hmm. he was like, even if he was playing a scale back then, whatever it was, he was meticulous from day one. Whether he's playing three notes, it always sounds good. Yeah. What's it like? I mean, what can you tell me about now that you've traveled the world with Satriani a few times over, I imagine, touring all these different markets in every different country? What have you picked up from him? Or how is he, how does that meticulousness well, come it, out on the road? Or It's funny because they're, the only meticulousness that he brings to, to the road is getting his rig set up right and then making sure that he knows exactly what it's supposed to be. He's had the same tech for 30 years, Mike Manning. They know what it's supposed to be. And so he's just up there just trying to make sure that he can pull off the stuff that he needs to on all the classic songs because that's going to comprise yeah. a certain amount of the set every time we go out. Uh, so when he walks over to certain monitors, will it feed back the right way? Can he hear the drums and all that? But once he gets it right, and we're talking about like the second sound show of the tour, we don't sound check after that. Really? We don't sound check. Just line checks? He, the, the crew line checks, and we walk on stage, and and the monitor settings are saved, and they'd better be good. Dude, that's a, that's a new level of luxury right there. It, it really is, but it's also a level of kind of trust and faith, and also uh, an aspect of, it's kind of the opposite 
the mirror image of what it is what he's doing uh, in the studio. So his vibe live is like, hey, listen, it's a live show. You know, you got to go out there, have fun, be loose. You know, it's just a gig. So he always says, he's like, it's just, he says, just a gig. Now, of course, we want to go out there and play it right and rock out, put on a show for the fans, make sure, you know, the the songs are are good. But the songs are designed to succeed. Oh, yeah. Mm. You know, not all, I I love Steve Vai, but not all of his songs are designed to succeed in a live performance, which, of course, is part of the trick. You know, it's like we're walking the high wire. It's the Zappa thing in a way. That's not what Joe's gig, Joe Satriani's gig is about. Joe Satriani's gig is about playing the melody, playing the groove, making it sound good, and vibing the crowd. And so, yeah, he's real big on like, let's make sure we hang it loose and have fun out there, you know? Is, is there any kind of bass line that you enjoy playing that sticks out from the Satriani set? You know, I always, re- I always really enjoyed playing the song Shockwave Supernova. Right. Uh, which is the simplest thing in the world, you know, that... Uh, the, the bass line to that song, when it comes in, is one, two, three. That's all there was, and I would. It was the first song of the night, and we would just go out there and we would just rock this. And then yeah. the chorus had this uh, progression that went like this. Yeah. The the first song of the last tour was was energy. So the very first thing I did in that show would be like. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I could do that all night and be really happy. I'm always struck by how versatile you are, man, because like you can also play all the fusion or the Keneally or the, the, yeah. all the totally different tones. Like, and then you're just totally bringing the rock. Yeah. You also bring in the hair in the Satriani band because <laughs> Satriani and like as another shiny headed guy, I can say the shit. Yeah, I know. I know. That's <laughs> you, right. You're, you're like on, Someone's got to have the hair up there. He's lead guitar. You're lead hair. You know, what's a really, really cool song to play is just this. I know, I know that one. It's a Ice Nine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're having a blast up there. I mean, that's a really, really cool progression. I mean, he wrote that 
30 years ago, you know, and every night, you know, that shows up as like something that's like really cool and fun to play and new. Now, all these guitar heroes on your album, you know, all the ones I know, and I know probably like 10 of these 12 or however many guitar heroes you have on here. Yeah. They all strike me as super humble, super nice, super just students oh, of yeah. music. But how would you differentiate some of them? Like, let's look at the at a big track on this record, which is which is, I guess, the second to last, Sweetwater. Yeah. Guthrie Govan takes a big moment on there. Yes. Another super humble student of music, but how is his approach different? I mean, they're both virtuosos, but how is he different than Satriani? Like, how, how do we understand the difference between a, his approach to the guitar? Well, I mean, Guthrie, Guthrie is such a black swan, you know? I mean, he, there, there, there's nobody out there quite like him. And so it's really hard to just say what's he like versus anybody else because he's like, it's like, oh my God, it's Guthrie. Uh, uh, I, I don't, you know, with Joe Satriani, I think you can you, you can tell that he had a phase in his life where he was actually gigging commercial gigs. He was doing cover gigs. He was doing R and B gigs. He was doing all that stuff, you know. Yeah. And then and then teaching. And then he did his own artist thing. And he hopped uh, in Mick Jagger's band. Right. And- exactly. Yeah. But but he had a background where he was like really doing like working class gigs. Uh, and three, he just released the Squares too, his club band. Oh, I love the, that record. Yeah, it's really. Cool. I love that record. Uh, Guthrie was a kind of like a virtuoso from the very beginning and he was always doing his own thing and even though he could play anybody and he could absorb anybody there's a famous video from online right where he does the 50 different guitarists uh you know he kind of kept to his own and didn't really didn't really go out and do other people's commercial gigs you know he was i know that he was uh writing for a guitar magazine in england doing transcriptions and he played in the Asia GPS for a little while uh, and was playing with a band called The Young Punks and finally, you know, put out his own record in 2006. He was already 35 years old when that happened, which is a lot of cakes, which of course is amazing. Uh, but And then you came around and said, I'm going to make you into a guitar hero, whether you want yeah, to yeah, or yeah, not. Yeah. He really, <laughs> it's so funny because, well, actually it was perfect because he knew he didn't want to be a guitar hero and here it was, we were a band. We weren't going to be Guthrie Govan and the Govanettes. Yeah. You know, it was going to be worthy aristocrats, and he's always been really cool about that. So, just to answer your original question, his sound is completely different than Joe Satriani's. You know, Joe has kind of like a a bassy, kind of warm sound that's, uh, that's, it's heavily saturated, but there's a lot of kind of push and pull in, there's a lot of frequencies that are scooped out up, up in the high mids, I think. Whereas Guthrie is really, really aggressive. Like, you know, he, he believes in the power of transients, he says. Transients are your friend. That's one of his lines. And so, you know, he really has that kind of, you know, more aggressive biting mid-range. Uh, so that, and what it does is it gives him so much control over his right-hand picking hand because the notes are just right there. When you when you leave the the... the the 900 to 2k frequency kind of alive and well and you have the right hand that Guthrie has you can make the strings and the guitar do absolutely anything
so that's a big part of what Guthrie does is the the the, the channel between his brain and his right hand and what the guitar the sound that it makes is instantaneous he would have been the perfect guitarist for Frank Zappa he would have been perfect he was the guy Frank would have found him very quickly and put him to work because he has a super clear tone where now this is that real naked thing like you better have that right hand if you're going to have that that's right he is not really I mean yeah I mean you know he some of the stuff on his uh, solo album is lush and there are effects on there but the real Guthrie is kind of like a a fairly dry you know really in your face kind of guitar sound and he can just haul ass under those circumstances because his technique is so amazing and because his brain works so fast so when you listen to something like Sweetwater you know we were trying to actually dress it up with some texture because it's supposed to be kind of a bittersweet beautiful you know semi-coded of the whole album and it comes yeah. right after the biggest most bombastic song on the whole record which is the nine minute world class it's funny we actually struggled with the sound of that song because we're thinking well it should be pretty we don't want to have it be too aggressive blah 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 and we started off with kind of a gilmore strat sound and we took that all the way into we we, we worked on the take meticulously and then yeah. we took it all the way into mix and we brought it into mix and we got to mix nine we were like okay this wow. is it and we just looked at each other and we were like, nope. You and Guthrie? Yep. So you're like on the road? Cause, no, well, we, we, were, we were communicating remotely because oh, he was okay. touring and I was touring in different directions and we were both moving and, and it was hard to get the scheduling together. And, and, and this magician Forrester from uh, Australia, Forrester Saville. And he, you're working remotely with him. We're too. working so remotely with him big too. Global triangle happening. Yeah, uh, there, it was, take it was, nine. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> mix nine. And mix nine. We, and we, were, it was, we knew it was a sensitive song and it was really important to get it right. And it was Guthrie's big moment and everything. And we just listened to it and we were just like, nope, this doesn't sound like Guthrie. Although it doesn't he, sound, and we like kind of like robbed him of some of the personality by trying to make it like pretty for the song. We're like, you know what? Screw yeah. this. We're starting over, you know, do a more saturated sound like you would do if you were standing live on a stage and just go for it. And he just used his volume knob to control the, the saturation and the gain. And I remember we used a Friedman yeah. model on that one, which is, you know, that, that that's a, a, a very, very close to the... Uh, the victory stuff that he's using now. Yeah, yeah. And it was like, boom, so there just, he is. That's he Guthrie. He used a plug-in at his house or something? Yep, that was the, uh, that was the Axe FX3. Oh, right. I would love yeah. to have brought him into a studio, but it was just, you know, it's one of those things there. When you're with Guthrie, I find if you're in the studio, it's best to be there with him so that you can be persnickety together because he gets yeah. really persnickety too. Uh, and if you if if it's not going to be the kind of thing where and that's what we did. What do you the, mean by that? <laughs> well, I mean like you know when we were doing the Aristocrats album, you know, I mean, it's, you know, we really made sure that like every, the parts were were excellent. Like Guthrie yeah. says, you know, when it comes to live stuff, he wants it to be a live thing. Put down your phones, don't record it. It's a one a time yeah. only thing, and anything can happen, and you just go for it. And it's like now it's like sounding similar to Joe, right? Uh, but when you're in the studio. What Guthrie would say is that we only have one chance to play it. The listener has a million chances to listen to it. So we should take That's the extra chance and get it right and that really totally make sure that... like something he would say. Yeah, and make sure that we that we yeah. it's something that we can live with. So, he's so funny, too. And he's so British. Like... What was that? You told me one story when his amp fell over or something. And oh, that's the oh no story. Yes, <laughs> yeah, he goes oh no, and he, and it really loud. Okay, what happened is we were carrying gear into a club, and his amplifier fell off of another thing that somebody was carrying. And it's probably a cool amp, like maybe it's cornfur. It was or yeah, it was a really nice amp. And he just looked at it and just went oh no, 
and Marco and I looked at each other and we were like, yeah, and we've told the story on stage a bunch of times already. So, uh, but, but, and then he looked at it and he goes, this is not good. And then he kept looking at it and he goes, this in fact is quite the opposite of good. <laughs> like who talks yeah. like that? <laughs> <laughs> he is such a chill cat. Yeah. I love this tune too. Now you had reminded me of it, but I remember I had texted you about it when it came out saying how much I love it. And then I think maybe you wrote it. Louisville stomp. Oh, yeah, I did write that I song. I love that tune. It's got more of a um, Bakersfield swing or some kind of yeah. country vibe. And the tone on there is like totally different for the guitar. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, the Aristocrats is kind of an excuse to just go into any pastiche you want and just completely fuck with it. Actually, the way that that song happened was that Marco and I were jamming in a sound check and we were doing this dumb, fast swing thing. You know, not like jazz swing, like, you know, like, like, and it was just, we were road, you know, we were road crazy and, you know, we were delirious. And we stopped and thought, well, it kind of sounds like the, the theme to Ren and Stimpy, that whole, you know, psychobilly thing. And then, I, and then I went back at some point and I was like, well, I, I need three songs for the next album. What if I just wrote a song like that? And, and so, I mean, it's such a classic form, right? It's the AABA form. And then, he, and then he insisted on playing it on a Gretsch. <laughs> well, maybe that's why I'm noticing, like, you know, it's a fun tone. It's a little different. Yeah. There was there was a Gretsch laying around, and he was just like, "Well, it has to be a Gretsch," you know. And, and it was I was watching him work on that thing, and it was just like, "Oh." Did you record that at like Sunset Sound or something? Or? No, no. The Culture Clash. And this is 2013. That was recorded yeah. at uh, Sound Emporium in Nashville. Yeah. It's the studio where uh, Robert Plant and Alison Krauss recorded that yeah. massive album that they did. I was just gravitating towards Sunset because that's right on Sunset Boulevard. Well, like fucking Trace Caballeros, Michael was, Jackson, yeah. and. Yeah, well, so this is so funny. So uh, in Sunset Boulevard is where we recorded Trace Caballeros, yeah. and we did it in the same room where they recorded some Fair Warning and Van Halen 1 and Bridge Against the Machine did some of Battle of Los Angeles there and like, yeah. you know, just all, I mean, the Rolling Stones, you know, just all sorts of people. But I mean, LA is so weird like that. Like uh, for, for my album, there's a song called The Storm, 
which is a kind of a progressive metal tune. And Gene Hoagland plays drums on that. And I brought him into United. And we literally recorded him in the same room where Michael Jackson recorded Thriller, which is not metal. That is funny. <laughs> but <laughs> that's what happened. Gene Hoagland, now what a machine he oh, is. Oh, I know. One of these songs, he has the sickest break. I think it's Steiner and Ellipses. It's Steiner and Ellipses, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I knew, I knew about him from when we did Death Clock stuff. And uh, Brendan Small, um, well, the Galacticon. Yeah. And checking out all those tracks. And I was, he plays a testament and stuff. But, uh-huh. Well, yeah. I was a huge strapping young lad guy. That's how I thought about it. So, you know, I knew about Devin from Steve Vai. Devin Townsend. I've kept following him when he started strapping on Lad. It was just, that stuff was so ahead of its time. I mean, just the first song on the first album was just like so aggressive and so brutal. It was like, really, 90s were a funny time for metal, as everybody knows, uh, where the 80s kind of ended and grunge was big. And, and, and of course, you know, what ended up happening with grunge rock with Soundgarden and, and Pearl Jam and Nirvana, it all ended up being great rock music, but it's just not metal. Pantera was a thing yeah. for the early 90s, but even that didn't really, you know. So in the mid-90s, what was going on? Well, there were two bands that really kind of got way, way ahead of the curve. And it was both like 95 and 96. Strapping Young Lad was was Devin Townsend's band. I think that was 95. And then, of course, Destroy, Erase, Improve by Meshuggah came out in, I think, 96. And like, you know, you can just trace a million bands to those two first things. I love uh, them, but I didn't realize that was Gene Hoagland. Yeah, Gene Hoagland was on all the... And, and then, so they, they it was like, uh, the first album was, was Heavy is a Really Heavy Thing. And then I think there was an album called SYL. Then there was City... Uh, and then there was Alien, and Alien is the record. I mean, like to me, it's it's only forty minutes, but there's it's just the most aggressive, brutal, majestic, scary thing I I've ever heard. And Gene is just ridiculous. And then on the New Black, their final album, he's also amazing on that record. So I wanted to write something that was kind of a bit of an homage to Devin and Steiner and Ellipses. While it, it has its place in the storyline of of my album, it's the kind of really really super aggressive end of part one you know it's like we've introduced us some of the characters and now suddenly there's this malevolent kind of aggressive force uh that shows up uh and if you can imagine like all you know in the end of it it's like all the characters from part one like kind of doing their little dance on the stage you know before the curtain draws before there's a a cut between act one and act two that's what the end of that (laughs) is supposed to be but as if Devin Townsend scored it so you know and 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 yeah there's a the tempo of that song is really fast it's just like it's full-on thrash it's oh yeah yeah just single note you know stuff (laughs) like it reminds me you know world class you got a crazy head on there i don't know if you got neely brosh joining you on the melody or
I wanted it to, I wanted the whole, uh, I, this point in the story, you know, the whole album is really kind of yeah. more about a story than it is about playing, if that sounds weird. The whole, the whole idea was to kind of deconstruct the idea of a player's album. And in order to do that, you need to have all the players. It's like kind of a weird irony because the album is about disillusionment. So the whole album kind of builds up to this big climax in side four. And if you look at the drawing for, for World Class, if you, if you just look at that, you can just see what the picture is. It's a picture of a stage on fire. Yeah, every song gets a different page in the booklet or yeah. whatever size you get. There's a really cool image with each song. So you're saying... Well, this is the one... This song is supposed to be representative of like, kind of like everything coming together at once. You know, there's a lot of things that have... The, the song, the album actually starts off in a space of optimism and then slowly but surely that kind of slips away and there's a couple of big events that happen and, and you know, your view of, of the world is inevitably and irrevocably transformed. And how do you react to that? What do you do with that information? Meanwhile, you know, things are keep happening and keep happening and keep happening until finally, you know, like, like the end of any kind of big grand story, all the story elements come together and there's this one climactic moment and that's what world-class is. So, at the same time, there's a kind of a meta-narrative where I'm trying to give the payoff of what a double concept progressive album would be. And of course, this is the song that that would be, right? Yeah. So you're listening to it and you're like, oh my God, this thing is so incredible. And you know, you know, you feel the emotional release of listening to 70 minutes of music and then waiting for this thing to show up. And then you get there and then there it is. Uh, but it doesn't end with a big resolution. It ends on a five chord. It ends unresolved. And and I just threw everything I had into it. I threw the, the absolute kitchen sink at it. Uh, I even, yeah. you know, I just, I mean, there, there there's stuff in there. The sitar player from India who's on there, Rishabh Singh, is just amazing. And it took a long time to get his part right because there was even certain things about the sitar part that weren't really, they didn't lay out really great on a sitar. So that was the thing. But we worked on that, we worked on that, and that was okay. Then the strings were like, you know, okay, it would have been great if it was an orchestra. I didn't want to have it all be just fake strings. So I got this guy named Paul Cartwright, and he rearranged, well, he didn't rearrange the song. He he just took my arrangement, uh, and he what he did was he listened to the keyboards that I did on the demo, and then he transcribed them and basically tracked himself like 20 times, yeah. creating a huge string section. And that took forever to put together. I had actually asked John Petrucci if he would play the melody originally. And at first he said yes. And then it turned out that he was recording the Dream Theater album at the same time. And it was just like, he's like, I can't do it. It's too much. You know, and of course he could yeah. do it. Right. You know, but, uh, but you know, he just didn't have time. He's he like, I can do had 26 billion notes. in his Yeah, mind. exactly. And he's like, I'm, I can do the solo. And that's when I thought of Neely because, you know, Neely is one of those people who she plays in this idiom. You know, I really don't. Yeah. You know, the whole like shredding unison lines and stuff like that. That's not really my thing. Uh, but uh, I knew that she would do a great job with it and that she had the right tone for it. So much of it is about 
uh, just having the tone together uh, for kind of like yeah. the modern progressive metal rock kind of thing, instrumental rock. And so I put this whole thing together and it all works. But the purpose of it on the album is to set you up for a fall. The, you know, the, the whole point of the exercise is just to allow for the uh, the guitars and the strings and the sitar and the rhythm guitars yeah. to do their thing while, you know, the drums and the bass are just going. Yeah. So I mean, the, 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 it sounds like it's this crazy song, but really, all it is—it's the—it's the easiest progression in the world. Oh, but it it's just so one minor, flat six major, yeah. flat three yeah. major, two seven. Oh yeah, you but know, it's, it's the intensity that builds. Yeah, yeah, it's the it's yeah. the it's the grandeur of it all, and it just leads right into the last thing. Right, it's like one of the tracks that just continues into the final track well yeah you know it fades out there's a yeah. very long fade at the yeah. end of that song and then uh and then you know the very first thing that happens after that is like okay you've got this now it's going to be this this guitar ballad the six slow six yeah. eight guitar ballad is going to end the thing and who other than guthrie govan could like come after a song with all these superstars on and by the way ray hearn from haken is on drums on that song and you know he has a the only extended drum solo gene hoagland has a couple breaks but he's got the only extended drum solo of the entire album oh yeah i was thinking of of sweetwater that one continues into the last song oh yeah yeah so but, after um, after the you know the the third to last song is yeah. world class which is this nine minute song yeah. that we've just been talking about then there's sweetwater yeah. uh which is uh which is this the the six eight guitar ballad and then yeah that song it's it's this it gives you the big kind of amazing you know comfortably numbish kind of you know david gilmore except it's guthrie govan you know guitar yeah. solo that you would expect at the end of a big progressive album and then it brings back the theme that starts off the entire album so at minute 85 you finally hear the theme that you heard in in minute one which of course if you're you know if you're a progressive nerd like i am that's the thing that you're waiting for you're you're just waiting for to bring it all back home and then i must have spent a week writing the chord progression that served as the reprise the, or the reprise however you say that for that part and wind it out so that it sounds like it's going to give you this big huge climax and then it doesn't it just kind of implodes and that and then that's how the, that's how the album ends is that the last song is kind of an ambient piece that just turns minor and stays minor and and doesn't do the thing that you expect it to do which is really kind of the message of the whole album So tell me about some of these acoustic moments because you got the what I would think of as like the the shadows, the really dark moments. Yeah, you got well, Janet Fetter and Mike Dawes. You introduced me to the music of Janet Fetter, and she does so much cool stuff. Like I, I oh, think yeah. she's doing like some kind of bowed acoustic or something at the beginning of one of these songs, the baritone. Like maybe it's, I think maybe it's the flood. She's got the treatments you say, right? Yeah. And uh, there's baritone acoustic.
okay, so let's just let's just talk about about the one. Of the, first of all, a concept album. If you're going to do like an 88 minute, 18 song concept album, you can't just have every song just blasting you in the face. It's just too, you know, it's just too much, you know. And and I'm a metal fan. Even the metal albums that we all love, they do have breakdowns, you know. Yeah. So I felt it was important, especially because. I really was using the wall as a model for this album. I'm not sure, you know, I, I could Floyd go, wall, I could go, yeah, Pink Floyd the Wall. I could go really meta about this and, sh- and talk about how there's very subtle things about the structure of the album that really, like, I paid attention to it. Like, like filmmakers will pay attention to the way that certain scenes are shot and stuff like that. I really yeah. wanted to go in. And one of those things was to make sure that around all these kind of longer epic songs, that you have these shorter songs that are like kind of like interludes. Uh, so side two, for example, uh, you know, you get through the side one, which is like a lot of introductory stuff. The first song, the scouring of three and 17 is just an, oh, it's like an overture. The, the tr- it's actually a flash forward. It's actually the end, but we don't have to get into that now, yeah, but, uh, now you're, now you're yeah, your brain. right. That's, that's the end of the story. The, the volunteer you- state, the second song, that's the beginning. So side two starts with a big, long, progressive song, which is called Always Worth It. And the end of it is really, really, uh, it's got a very big ending. It's just builds and builds and builds, and finally it's just massive. And then suddenly it stops. We need a break. And that's where we are in the story as well. And so this song called Lookout Mountain, which is the seventh track and the second song on on side two, all it is is just a series of Tibetan bowls Tibetan singing bowls and uh, and and a baritone guitar. And I had the concept for this song. I went to Nepal. And uh, yeah, it was on tour with the aristocrats. We ended up doing a show in Nepal. We went to visit this place called the Monkey Temple, which is like a, a you know on the top of a mountain, and there's all these like religious shrines and stuff. And there's what all these monkeys. Were you at? <laughs> High. <laughs> and there's all these monkeys running around, and uh, and 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 I saw this Nepalese man holding this bowl and sh- and swimming like kind of circling with with a, with, a, with a striking element, and it was making the sound. It just goes. Wait. Yeah. Holy shit, he's procuring an object. Hold on, hold on, so... Yeah, you just rub that thing around, it just starts feeding back, I love it. This is the actual bowl that I bought in Nepal that started the whole thing. So I, I, as soon as I saw it, I was like, must have, and you know, blind buy, right? You know, so I got it and I took it home. And then I realized that that this, these usually come in, in sets, and that uh, it would be cool to have like a whole set of them. I got a bunch more here, and I don't need to break them all out. But yeah. there's 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 smaller and big ones, and they have different pitches. So I thought, well, I could kind of create like a melody out of these things and yeah. do that. And so we'll have that, and then we'll have this beautiful baritone guitar come in, right? So I'm making yeah. the demo, and I've got the bowls, and I borrowed a baritone guitar from Rick Masalem, and I 
tuned it totally weird. Like it's a, it's kind of like a B seven, B dominant seven chord tuning, yeah. so that I could just bar the thing <laughs> and just move my fingers along the fret, and like most of the work would be done. But yeah. there were a couple things I did it where I hit a harmonic and I, you know, little yeah. breaks here and there. You know, I really just banged it out, and then I gave it to Mike Dawes, yeah. and because I'd seen him performing live in LA at the Roxy. He was doing a show with Pliny and Nick Johnston and David Maxim Michich. I think that's how you say his name. Anyway, he had the whole thing worked out, like just this beautiful acoustic tone. And then I went online and saw him and listened to his recordings. And that was the key thing is that he really had worked out how to make an acoustic sound amazing. And I was like, this is the guy that I want. And he actually didn't have a baritone. He went out and got one. Uh, Acoustic. yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and so he, I sent him the demo and he was like, great, I know what to do. He sent me back this thing where he was like, there was a lot of kind of like flashy stuff on there, like, you know, some tapping handover stuff and percussive stuff. It was just beautiful. I would say I reined him in about maybe 10, 20%. Mm-hmm. And then we had something that was just absolutely gorgeous. So Mike Dawes is one of the younger people on the album. I think he's, he just turned 30 and he's an absolute phenomenon. And I didn't know who he was when I started writing this song. So that's one acoustic person. The other one is Janet Fetter. Now, Janet Fetter's totally different. I've known Janet for 13 years now. I first met her when she was opening a show, a Mike Keneally concert in Denver, because she lives in Denver. And right. they did an improv set together. And she had she plays prepared guitar. She had you know roach clip and a split ring on her guitar and all sorts of things that horsehair hole hanging off of it that she could make all these completely unique noises with with electric guitars too or is it mostly it was mostly acoustic that she was doing it with the the stuff in the show that's her primary thing is acoustic and even when she plays electric it's like an electric acoustic it's meant to emulate a clean guitar she's not using distortion so i absolutely was enthralled with her artistry immediately and i've been a fan of her work forever the album Ironic Universe, uh, the one that she did with Fred Frith is amazing. And then she had an album out called Songs with Words, which came out, I think, in 2012. But the album that blew me away was something called This Close. And it came out in 2015. And it's just, you know, when you follow an artist and like they have a couple of albums that are really, really good, and then they make one, you're like, wow, that's it. That's the one. And that's how I felt about this. And it was, there was so much space around it and so much atmosphere and the mood of it was so unique and it was kind of dark, but beautiful. And, and I, and so now let's go back to the sequence of the album. So we have this very, very pretty thing that happens after the big progressive song. That's track seven. It's the second song on side two. And then the third song on side two is called the storm, which is this seven minute progressive metal. Just, you know, the world is coming to an end. It's really, really heavy. And so after the storm, there's a song called The Flood. And that's the song that ends the first half of the album. And that's the song that Janet Fetter played on. And I basically wrote this song for her. I wrote it so that she could bring her artistry into the world of this album. And so it's an ambient piece. There's uh, just a kind of a a found sound background. You know, I recorded the sound of, I'm not going to tell you what it is, but I recorded a sound uh, with my iPhone. And that's the thing that starts off the song. Why aren't you going to tell us what it is? I'm not going to tell anybody what it is. Is it a appliance or is it an instrument or is it, it's a it's a it's a it's a type of machine, okay. And if you get the if you get the CD or the LP and you get the artwork, you'll get a big hint as to what it is. Uh, but everything else in there is either a keyboard, either a hundred year old piano or a grand piano or something in the chord chronos that I played. The rest is her, and she's playing a fretless guitar, you know, on one part, 
a kind of repeating fretless part. And then on, and on one side, on the other side, she's playing her acoustic baritone, but it's got split ring on one of the strings, and it's got, uh, I think it's got the roach clip hanging. It makes all these unbelievably beautiful percussive and harmonic overtones that you would never hear a normal guitar make. And then she's making other mystery sounds throughout it, and I can't give away the secret as to what that is either. You'd have to see her live. Uh, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> and so... You know, it wasn't just about having an acoustic guitarist in either case. For Mike Dawes, it was, I wanted someone who, yeah, was a great technician and could play, but like really had his recording world really, really dialed. Because, you know, acoustic guitar is a difficult thing to record correctly. And he has an engineer that he works with in Wales, and man, they have just got it dialed. So he sent me these tracks, and I was just like, man, I didn't have to do much to them. And with Janet, it was really more about her artistry overall than just the fact that she was an acoustic guitarist. In either case, there's no drums on either of those songs, and they serve as, you know, vibe interludes around a couple of very aggressive songs. And you play a lot of guitars yourself on this record. I mean, well, okay, so I'm going to almost gonna... every track has, has some Brian Beller guitar playing. Well, okay, now wait. I'll, I'll and it's interesting because I can tell the bass players play guitar definitely differently than guitar players. Oh, yeah. You're really good at the first four strings. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Until that major third interval hits. Oh my god! And then I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Uh, <laughs> at the and this, this, this part, I'm not afraid to be embarrassed about because everybody knows I'm a terrible guitarist. He's so, plugging in some play- sort of. This is a honer beater strat copy that yeah. Rick Masalm had lying around forever, and this is the thing that I recorded like. Almost anything that wasn't like a seven string yeah. or had to be like with the B. Like there are some rhythm guitars for the for the storm that I did on that. Even but, when you're tuning, you're just you just look like a bass player. The way your hand is over the the right hand is plucking. <laughs> yeah, I remember yeah. when I finally finished the demos for the album and I played the last guitar note. I was so happy. Yeah. I was so happy. I didn't have to play guitar anymore. Well, you know, there, it's the side three songs. Yeah. Those are the ones where I mean, of well, course, there's, there's rhythm with, guitar. I remember and, one with you and Joe and yeah, there's one where it's just Joe like Travers and drums. all the guitars uh, and uh, yeah, that's a really sounds beautiful. I mean, that's the basic yeah. that's the basic melody in Bunkistan. Uh, and yeah, that I played fingerstyle. I played it. I'm playing it just like you would play a bass, and that just is what it is. Those, those strings must feel just like so microscopic to you. It's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how anybody plays this instrument. Yeah. You know, I mean, I have a lot of respect for all the guitarists who do that. And uh, and so uh, this is like. That's the melody to as advertised. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm, I'm using a bass overdrive pedal. I'm just like banging like through it right now. I'm just yeah. getting around it. All I was doing was I was just like, okay, I'll just make the demo. Uh, and then what ended up happening was with these songs in particular, with Bunkistan and as advertised, you know, I had gotten a little bit more adept at making the demos at that point because I was doing the demos in sequence and these were songs number 10 and 11. And I listened back to the, you know, I used stupid waves plugins and pro tools and everything listen back i was like actually that's kind of the vibe and so what i i sent them to forrester and i was just like can you just like take these and reamp them and like mix them for real and see if they'll work and they did
As far as the guitar solos, because there are guitar solos in both of those songs, that, I, I don't think it was all that different than the way that a guitarist would have done a solo. I, I, I kept, you know, it, it's such a relief in a way to play a guitar solo rather than a bass solo because there's so much support going on. You know, when you play a bass yeah. solo, it's like everybody stops playing. It's like, why, why do you stop playing? Like, <laughs> why can't I have that, the same support? But it doesn't work that way because, because bass is bass and guitar is guitar. let the thing play if I'm cutting a solo and just kind of vibe around for a little while and if it felt good I'd keep it and if it's something was I'd stop it punch in and keep going I I didn't plan out the guitar solos at all the same way that I might even plan out a bass solo and it was kind of liberating in that way for Bunkistan especially because that, that time signature is in nine It's a series of five chords that cycle, so it's it, it can wrong foot you in a way. But I had the advantage of being the composer, so of course I know what the, you know how it all goes. And then for the solo and as advertised, you know that was just turn on every effect and just go for it. I, I did that actually with the plugins live. I turned on a phaser and a reverse delay, and uh, and, and I just turned on everything. You're a guitarist. Yeah. It's so much fun. Yeah. You can't get away with this shit when you're a bass player, you know? I mean, you just you can just lay on one note and just have it sing. It's like Dude, you got to get It a sounds sing. so basic like every like, you know, bedroom guitarist in the world goes, "Oh, wow, you can yeah. play one note and let it sing." But that was kind of the revelation for me once I finally started yeah. getting comfortable making the demos in the second half of the album was like, "Hey, you know, w with the right plug-in and just a little bit of time, you know, I can actually execute a guitar part that might be a keeper. Yeah. Ar Army of the Black Rectangles, that was That's one. just you and Joe Travers on drums. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm.
the whole point of that song was just to be uh, like, it's kind of a, it's it's very much kind of a of a Nine Inch Nails send up in a way. There's a nod to some restarted optimism in the beginning with Bunkistan because that's kind of actually like a love song between musicians. That's what that's for. That's why that song sounds so sweet and all the tones are so clean and all the rest of that. And then as, as advertised, an army of the black rectangles comes around. It's like, no, this isn't going to go that way. And, uh, and it just kind of starts a big, long, slow descent and to the come- end of the album. It rocks, man. You know, I love that It's like, tune. Why, why, why can't yeah. you do that? Why can't you do that if you're a bass player? So I remember I, I yeah. was sitting down here and just be and, and kind of figuring that all out for the first time and then finally executing it like right for the first time and being like, wow, man, playing guitar is awesome. Hey, man, we got enough <laughs> guitar players, Brian. I don't need any more competition. I, I believe me, there's there's no competition to be had, but it was. It you got Have you ever picked up one of Satch's guitars with a sustainer on it and mess with one of those? No, <laughs> just hold that note forever. I mean, and that's the thing is, you have to remember that all this is happening on like a on a yeah. Honer Strat copy, like yeah. everything from the whole record, right down to even the weird, complicated rhythms in World Class. By the time I got to the fourth side and I was in demo number sixteen, I was like, oh yeah, you know, I know, I'll yeah. just I'll just play guitar on this and da da da. da. I mean, it would have been yeah. ridiculous to kind of go back and replace every single rhythm guitar. Yeah. Because well, they get buried in the mix anyway. You know, I mean, yeah. it's just a sound and a texture and everything like that. I'd already executed it right. If stuff needed to be edited, I already edited it. You know what I mean? It's like... Yeah. It was Some just, of them have a cool, like, psychedelic sound, too. Like, even the very first track, the opening track, I think it's just you on piano and some electric guitars. And oh, God, that was a nightmare. Actually, the the you're talking about... Uh, to me, it's almost Beatles-y. The way they come in. Yeah, that, that's that's this. That's uh So this part, this whole thing, which is the very first guitar of the whole album, this is from the song The Scouring of 3 and 17. Opening this is track. totally supposed to be like Steve Howe, 1975. Ah, cool. It's supposed to be him doing that kind of pedal steel thing almost that he did, or yeah. like some of the swells from the here in Relayer or Tales from Topographic Oceans and stuff like that. When I was doing the demo for the storm, like I'm sitting here uh, listening to that, and I can't even, that's on a seven string, so that can't be done here. But I remember thinking, yeah. okay, I want it to sound kind of like Holdsworthy, Frederick Thorndall, half diminished. Yeah. I can't do that stuff. There, I didn't even try to do it on the demo. So I called Jamie Kime because I'd heard him play, and I know he can do that thing, that really kind of fluid, angular kind of style. Yeah. And he had the right sound, too. It's very kind of smooth and, and sweet, mid-rangey and everything. And so I had him come over to, the, to this. He was right here, and he brought a, a head that we came out of. It was a Friedman head. 
someone else found this place too besides yeah. me <laughs> <laughs> and and he tracked the solo for the demo and as soon as i heard it i knew that it was a keeper it was just yeah. it was, was you know it was he didn't didn't take him very long to do it yeah he's you know? such a monster he's been on the show too yeah Of course, I'm making reference to sidebar here, but you live, like for someone who's such a mover and shaker, man, and just plugged into so many different parts of the scene, like, this is LA or is it Phoenix? It's just amazing. It's beautiful. Like we're, we're way out in the mountains here, man. So what are you doing so far away from Hollywood and Santa Monica and, and Silver Lake? Well... I mean, you have the most beautiful view here of the canyons and the. I live, yeah, I live, I live way, way north of Los Angeles. Not like San Francisco. I mean, people think these, you say north of Los Angeles, think, oh, San Francisco. You know, if they don't live like, here, but no, it's Google Maps literally can't find this place, and there's like a dirt road involved. So yeah. it's really amazing to be out here in the mountains with you. But why be so far away from civilization? Be, but be, well, I mean, you're not that far. But the thing is, is it's it's the magic of California is that you can be in a place that feels like it's the middle of nowhere, really truly rural and mountain and yet you're 30 minutes from the baked potato true i could be at the baked potato in 35 minutes and so it you know it's like are you really you know completely removed from civilization well no but i am completely removed from urban life and that is definitely a deliberate choice i realized a long time ago i grew up in new jersey in suburban new jersey where the suburbs just kind of stack up against each other one after another and there's just no end to them until you get to western jersey or pennsylvania and i just remember feeling trapped and I always felt that way. Even when I was a kid, I felt that way. I was always looking for like a, an, a dirt road or an open forest or just anything to get me away from the houses all next to each other with the fence or God forbid, the city. The city was exciting, but I, I, like, I, you know, a couple hours was always enough. And so when I finally came out west and saw what it looked like out here, I thought to myself, oh my God, that's the, like my whole body and my whole soul just kind of opened up. And I thought that is where I, I belong here. And it took me a while to figure out how to find a place where I could live and make it work in the city, but eventually I did. Uh, and I lived in North Hollywood for eight years. I lived in the middle of everything. And right. I just remember I would always go on vacation up in the mountains and nowhere, and, and I would always be kind of depressed when I came back. So finally I was just like, well, this is stupid. I should just live where I feel good. And uh, yeah. it's not for everybody living this far away. And there's, certain, saying, there's certain elements about this that really are, are not practical, especially if I was gigging in town a lot. That would be tough. But because I do a lot of touring, yeah. it's set up to be like this. And what's touring? Touring, you just go from city center to city center. You All you see is concrete. You know, even if you're riding between the cities and on the highways in the bus or the van, you're still just on the road. You know, you just see it. It flashes yeah. by. Next thing you know, you're in the hotel. Next thing you know, you're next to the train station. Next thing you know, you're at the venue. Then you go back to the... It's all city center. It's all concrete. It's all urban living. Because, you, yeah. you know, you got to go play where the people are. You can't go play for a mountain. Yeah, you're well. You're winning it, man. Yeah. So <laughs> best of both worlds in your I life. I am very, very, and and this is the yeah. place that enabled me to have the kind of mindset that I needed in order to write 88 minutes of music yeah. and demo it all because I did demo it all. Every well, instrument, yeah. every arrangement, every note, it's all demoed. I mean, the amazing part when I first got here and I was out on the deck is how I was telling you how quiet it is out here. Yeah. Like you don't you live in the city anywhere, even a small town. There's so much sound yeah it's but i, bet you I need that because my brain is busy enough yeah well, now we're really getting off topic here but 
When I think of you too, I also think of you as one of the most detail-oriented managerial. Like you're, do other people seem like scattered to you, <laughs> Brian? And I don't mean that you're judging them, but I see you as a more organized person than typical musicians. And I know a lot of really organized, um, you know, ambitious musicians, but you seem to like juggle a lot of things and yet you still keep the musical inspiration happening. And You know, it's funny you should say that. My brain gravitates towards organizational and concrete things. And so like, you know, you would think that if I was like kind of organized that like it would be the kind of thing where maybe I would kind of prepared certain things for this interview from a playing perspective, but that's not really where my organizational brain goes. It goes, goes towards a task list. And it's always been like that for me ever since I was really, really young. Uh, my brain is just, I wouldn't wish this on anyone else because you really, it's something that you live with kind of like all day long uh, and your whole life. The obsessiveness of having all the details done and right and the constant were of a mind that does that and you know when i was a kid it really got me a lot of trouble because the classes were always going way too slow and then i would freak out i'd just be sitting there so bored and so everything's spinning and you can't you know you can't just go do what you want when you're nine years old you got to sit there in the class or you're going to get in trouble and so i got in trouble a lot now that I'm an adult and I get to go at my own pace, <laughs> what would you do that would get you in trouble? In oh, class? it's not worth going into. <laughs> I mean, were you like, just like I, I just goofing you know, off or just doing extra? Sometimes credit? I would goof off. Sometimes I would be hyperactive. Sometimes I would fall asleep. Sometimes I would just I I, I just didn't fit. Right. You know, and uh, and and I had a really uncomfortable uh, pre-college schooling uh, existence. Once I got to Berkeley at College of Music, then it was like, oh my God, everything's going a million miles an hour here and everybody's amazing and, and, and I got to work hard and keep up and it was good. That's what I needed. But yeah. in terms of like the way that my brain goes, yeah, I mean, I, I have been maintaining a list of things that I'm doing this today, this week, this month, and kind of in the big picture that I've been constantly updating since I've been 19 years old. Do you have a literal list? I have a literal list. It's right there. So it... Is it old school? Like I'm looking at a notepad. It's 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 it... it's a word processor now. I print it out, but I print it out. Ah. I believe in the physical manifestation of this list. Before there was yeah. a personal computers, I used to write it out. It's because there was always so much going on in my head. I would just think, oh, oh, right, I want to do that, and yeah. I, if if I didn't write it down, I would forget, and then yeah. that would drive me crazy. Then I would spend hours obsessing over what was the thing that I thought of, and so yeah. I, I I realized very quickly that I was going to end up in an insane asylum if I started living like that. So I started writing down everything as soon as I thought of it. How many items are on your list typically? <laughs> I don't know. Dozens? Oh, yeah, it could be anywhere from 50 to 100. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, some of them are much shorter term than others. You have to organize them into some kind of timeline that makes sense. I always felt like too that maybe Satriani, like obviously you can play anything, any genre on bass, but also having you in his band must have almost been like a relief to him to know that everything was going to be fucking I don't know handled. that it's a relief to everybody to, 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 to <laughs> you know to to have someone who's kind of so you know on it and making sure that everything is just so uh but I do believe in the power of preparation you know I mean like I yeah. I don't remember how some of my songs go right now which is kind of a funny thing but you know if I'm getting ready for a live gig I mean like for the aristocrats tour I've already run the set even though we did the show 50 times, I've already run, run the set four times completely top to bottom. And I haven't even done in your my home in my, yeah. And I haven't even done my standing up practice yet. And then you run it standing up. 
Yeah, because because it feels different when you play standing yeah. up than when you're just sitting there. You know, you got to stand yeah. stand up and actually approximate what it feels like to I be do. on stage. It feels different. Yeah. You know, so yeah. I mean, I go into things really. I, I try and prepare. Uh, so I'm not yeah. the guy who wasn't prepared. Well, I ask you this just because, like, in order to do an amazing, epic, four sided record such as scenes from the flood, I would imagine. I mean, most people that would just end up going 15 years unless they were organized and had way had a plan and had deadlines and and made shit happen. It well, could, it could be Chinese democracy. Yeah, yeah and it, you're. I know. So. I did my first album very quickly because that's how first albums always go. You don't know. You know, I booked, uh, I, I wrote the material over the course of a few months and then I booked 11 days in a studio, seven days to track, four days to mix. That's it. That's all you need, right? And that was it. At the end of it, I had a record. And that one was called Remind View. You. And that was 2003. Then in 2008, I did kind of a more ambitious thing and, and, and that was called Thanks in Advance. And that took longer, but it was still a regular length album. I had a lot of people on it, but... It wasn't quite the thing that I, I realized in retrospect that I was trying to say. This is the thing I was trying to say. And it, the first songs for it, this, the ideas for it, showed up in my head in 2013. Like the melody to, I just remember hearing this thing in my head. The, uh... Yeah. And then remember thinking, if I could just go. Yeah. Underneath it. And, and that that just looped in my head kind of over and over and over again in 2013. And I'm like, what's that? That's not an aristocrat song. That's Volunteer State. And then the other one was The Storm, that that whole, I can't play it because it's on a seven string, but uh, that... Yeah. And these two things were just like over and over, and I'm like, well, I guess I'm working on a new album then. And so, you know, but the problem was is that I was on tour with the Aristocrats and Joe Satriani almost constantly from 2013 through 2016 or working on an Aristocrats album. So all I had time to do was to, if I would think of something and I would hear a melody, I would grab my iPhone and I would sing it into the iPhone voice memo. If yeah. you're listening out there, if you have a song, any idea shows up in your head, don't wait. Don't say I'll do it when I get home. Don't say I'm going to do it tomorrow. Grab your, your phone and sing it into the phone. Yeah. And just get it the idea down. And so... Uh, I started doing that and keeping a text file, uh, uh, an outline of all the songs and the titles. Now I had a list of song titles and vibes, and I know what each like. I'm, I'm it would never it wouldn't make any sense for me to tell the entire story of the album yeah. as I see it because then you've completely robbed the listener of their experience. But I know every detail of this story, and it's all represented in, yeah. in each song and especially the title. And so I started coming up with more titles and vibes. And then, and then music was starting to show up in my head that was filling in those spaces. I'm seeing them in the iPhone voice memo or even making text notes on the chord changes on my outline. 
And so that became suddenly it was three songs, then it was five songs, then it was eight songs, and then it was 10 songs, and then it was 12. And now I'm into like 2015, I'm still going way too fast with the Aristocrats and Joe Satriani to have time to demo any of these things. And now I'm into 2016 and I've got all 18 songs, all the song titles. I know the sequence of the album. I can pretty much almost sing the whole, like if I could have just opened up my mouth and the sound of an album could have come out, that would have been a lot easier. It's all in your brain. Only Lookout Mountain and The Flood, those two songs and parts of Let Go of Everything, the last song were kind of nebulous. Yeah. Everything else, if I go back and listen to the, the, this, the iPhone voice memos that I was singing, they're there. Like I knew what it was. And so... I would, by the time yeah. I got off the road finally in 2017, I was dying to make the demos. And so I just took a year off from everything else. I didn't take any other work. And I spent eight months doing nothing but making the demos. Now, can everybody do that? You know, that's not practical for some people. And I understand. But that yeah. was just my brain. I couldn't go another day without saying, I have to stop and do this or I'm going to explode. And so after a year, I had the demos. And then once I had the demos, then, you know, the the advantage of having an OCD brain kicks in. I have a spreadsheet and outline all sorts of things. I started putting names in places of who I wanted to contact for certain things and just reaching out to everybody and just and then just collating the information and getting the tracks yeah. one by one, checking off the boxes, and then you know once the song was ready, sending it off to mix and, and all those things. And so from the time that I started actually, had all the demos done and started tracking and mixing it, it was nine months to get all the tracks and then another nine months to mix it. Nine months mixing. Nine months mixing. Yeah, nine months. Man, I mean, the, the mixes are beautiful, I must say. Thank you. We worked really hard on them, and Forrester like, Savile is a genius. Like, I'm already like, dang, man, I want to see if Forrester can... He's hireable Let somehow. me tell you something. <laughs> Forrester Savile is hireable, and, and yeah. he's absolutely amazing. Just because he's in Australia doesn't mean that he can't mix your album. We were working remotely on a, on a, on a live stream that he subscribes to where you can get like high res audio in almost real time. And so yeah. we were doing live mix sessions with WhatsApp, right, texting right. on WhatsApp so that we didn't have to like stop and talk or have the echo of the time delay. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And we, we drilled down to really, really uh, specific details yeah. in that scenario. So but you're uh, still, you're basically almost live interaction. That's it cool. was live interaction. I mean, we started yeah. off, you know, he has to build the formula first and get everything together. And then, and then, yeah. and then once we got to a certain point, it was like, okay, I really want yeah. to drill down. And, and I told him before we started, I was like, listen, I'm really obsessive and, and it's going to take a while, but I think it's going to be a really magic thing in the end. If you do this with me and, and I've heard your stuff, yeah. the carnival record sound awake that, that he did. That's the record yeah. for people out there who want to hear what I heard and made me want to hire Forrester. It's a, a, a band called carnival and the record is called sound awake. Yeah. And the first track, which is called simple boy has the most crushing bass and drum sound you've ever heard. It's just amazing, but it's not just that the whole track yeah, sounds great. Out. Yeah. You did. Yeah, totally. yeah. Isn't it unbelievable? Yeah. 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 Just crazy. It sounds like a SVT bass or something. It, I don't know what The funny thing is, is, is I actually went to the Carnival studio. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't, uh, I mean, he was playing through an Ampeg rig, but it was one of those multi-effects processors that the key overdrive sound was coming from. It and, was. Yeah. He was running was, it straight in. Hey. Yeah, and, he, and he was just plugging straight in. Yeah. But, Tone is in the fingers it, it yeah. is it is. In the... Mean, it is that 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 riff is just so great it just has to be played where where is it uh where's that overdrive coming from oh it's that guy yeah 
mean, monstrous. Oh, it's, it's and, and you know that's just a hacky sound version of it. You got to hear yeah. the real thing. It's just so insane. Awesome. You also don't disappoint anyone who wants a little slap bass moment on that. Oh, you know, slap and echo. The, the whole, you know, it's like I don't really Track do that. Three. Uh, yeah, I mean, everything and nothing is. It's a funny thing because it's like, you know, when you hear a bass player doing an album, it's just like, oh, great. <laughs> you know, here comes all the bass solos, and especially the slap bass solos. Well, awesome. But I like it so rhythmic and entrancing, and with the echo added to it. Well, the yeah. the point of everything and nothing is not the bass. Yeah. The point of everything, nothing is is actually the spoken word. Right. Uh, it, it, it's it, you know there's a there's kind of a deep uh, echoey kind of voice of God kind of thing going on that is basically asking the protagonist to question what he thinks is real, you know, uh, and the protagonist yeah. responds. You can hear there's two different voices in in the spoken word. One of them is a very deep kind of you know expansive voice. The other one is a very narrow filtered voice. That's the voice of the small scared protagonist who's you know having to face. Uh, a way of thinking and a way of being that he's never contemplated before and so I wanted yeah. to create a kind of mystical trance-like vibe and it was an opportunity to get away from distorted guitar and leave a little bit more room for the sound of a voice in there yeah. and then you know uh, th- this was actually the only song on the album that I actually had in a, in a, in a form before 2013 I had this one kicking around since 2009 uh, and I used to do it as a bass solo piece with a looper. Cool. It's one of those things where I realized that the kind of trancy, mystical nature of it would fit with this part of the story, which is near the beginning of the album. It's only track three about, you know, can life work if you look at it through a prism of pure intentionality? You Okay, you lost me with that one, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I just, you know, uh, I mean, I think that there's... Can, yeah. can life work if you look at it through a prism of pure intentionality? In other words, there, there's a there's a there's a... Some of the, uh, I want to use phrases like new age and self-help are so loaded. You know, people have preconceived yeah. notions of what those are. But for lack of a better phrase, there are some power of positive thinking, uh, you know, uh, philosophies that, uh, that say if you simply intentionalize the way that you want something to go and speak into that intention and with every ounce of your being be in that intention in your interactions with other people at every moment, you will transform your surroundings around you, literally physically and the way that people react to you will be different as well well of course that's true if you show up and call someone a motherfucker you know they're going to be angry at you and if you call if you show show up and say hey your hair looks nice today you know it's going to be different of course that that's true but uh applied to more complex some of life's more complex situations does that really work this is the question that is being asked of the protagonist in this song, Everything and Nothing. So the spoken word of this, you know, this, uh, you know, what is it you think you see? So I, just from the beginning, it's welcome to a game of sorts, a chance to test your will, but this is not for meager stakes, nor for sport or skill. Today, we consider the possibility that everything you know is an illusion, a joke, a regime we seek to overthrow. What is it you think you see? You think that is reality? Your past is all you think and feel, distorting what you see as real. It forms your core identity and limits what you're meant to be. You're blind to life outside your view, and you are not yet truly you. And then there's an instrumental chorus. You know, so this information yeah. is kind of coming at the protagonist, and the protagonist is like, what? You know, really? His, you know, his response is, uh, this isn't what I came here for. I know myself real well, and I'm not about to give that up, so find something else to sell. You know, it's like a classic conversation yeah. between 
Yeah. Uh, you know, someone who's saying, hey, there's a better way. And, you know, the guy going, oh, no, I don't know. It sounds like bullshit to me, man. You know, like that whole thing. Yeah. That's what everything and nothing is about. And so, again, the music, even though we all focus on what the music is, the music is incidental. It's like truly like incidental that. in this case. Yeah. Just so happens that it's a bass carrying the thing and, and, and you hear the the echoey David Gilmore bass and the lines on top of it. And it's got this wah bass line, but it's all meant to serve the purpose of like this mystical inquiry. Like yeah. what is reality? And like, is, is this person right? Have I been, have I been like misconceiving the way that life works all along? Well, I don't want to read too much into it, but the, that first part seems like it could be some Brian Beller kind of outlook on getting shit done and, and <laughs> changing your reality. Well, like I said earlier on in the podcast, this album starts out quite optimistically and then slowly but surely the illusions are stripped away. So um, that's like, you know, uh, this album's been out now for six weeks. I'm not really uh, hiding the ball anymore, but I've, uh, this album is about disillusionment and, and the literal meaning of disillusionment is not just like, oh, you know, now I'm all dejected and depressed. It's like literally stripping away the illusions around you. And, uh, and so... Uh, there are a lot of lessons to learn as you follow the journey of, you know, from the beginning, from the, the very, very kind of sunny uh, major tonality melody of volunteer state. Yeah. By the time we get to, you know, Sweetwater and, and, uh, and let go of everything, the landscape yeah. has changed pretty dramatically. That's fantastic. But anyway, congratulations. I mean, what a, you've got us fully immersed in this record here, and then you leave us some room to figure out where it goes, and everyone's journey through it, I think, will be different. Yeah, well, <laughs> thank you so much. And if, if you're out there and you're thinking about, like, making a, an album that's like a big album, and, and you're staring and thinking about the environment for releasing recorded music these days where people are releasing singles and EPs and the attention span of people is shorter than it used to be, and there's Spotify, how will I ever make money on this, and blah, 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 blah. Don't fucking think about any of that. Just make the record that you want to make. Make and, and if it's five songs, great. If it's ten songs, great. If it's twenty songs, great. If the songs are a minute long each, great. Just make the thing that you want to make. The the sooner that you get to the place where you're not making the thing that you think that you should make, which is a very very easy place to start from when you're making your first album. A lot of artists are there. They don't even realize they're there, but they're there. They have this idea, but then they also think, well, this is the way it's supposed to be. And it takes maybe an album or two to kind of get that out of the way and then make the album that you really want to make. Just skip right to the good part. You know, make the album you want to make. And and. And the last thing that I would say is, is that if you're afraid of, like, if you're drawing from something, and because you, you, music always comes from somewhere, we draw on our own experiences. And if you feel like you have, like, stumbled on something that really is deep and you're scared of it and you're thinking to yourself, oh, my God, this is too personal. I don't know if I should do it. You've just struck gold. <laughs> awesome, That's man. where you should be. I love it, man. You are just, you're tapped into all the worlds to me, man. The deep musical stuff we're talking about and like everything you just said about getting personal, but also how to manage a career. Like you're one-stop shopping, man. So I really appreciate you um, well, being well, on the show. Thank you very much for having me. I, I, I don't take it for granted that I'm a bass player that's on a, a podcast called No Guitar Is Safe. And uh, yeah. I, I have been privileged to be in the world of a lot of really amazing guitarists for most of my career. And uh, I just wish sometimes that I could kind of beam into other people's brains some of the experiences I've had standing next to Joe Satriani while he worked something out or, you know, Petrucci while yeah. I saw him like dialing in his, you know, micro tweaking his tone before a show, you know, being like, oh, it's this. No, maybe it should be that. Or, you know, uh, or 
or yeah. Guthrie kind of like coming up with a part for the very, hearing it for the very first time. All these amazing people who are just so incredibly talented. Uh, I hope that everybody gets to see some of this someday. Well, cool, Brian. Thank you, Jude. Thanks for having me at the Bat Cave. I'm not, <laughs> not from in- an undisclosed location <laughs> yeah. somewhere north Los Angeles County. Yeah, man. Keep it alive till you're 95. Yeah, trying, man. Um, and so best place for people to grab it oh uh, yeah so I mean, it's uh, obviously on spotify yeah yeah yeah. so it's available in all the typical digital outlets you know uh and, and listen like i always say if you're a streaming person you know i'm fine with that stream it check it yeah. out see if you dig it and if you if you do dig it then yeah. i would just invite you to consider owning it uh you know you can get it on itunes obviously if you want a digital copy but also if you want high-res digital you can get it from my Bandcamp page and then you can get like AIFF or wave or you know the original uncompressed yeah. files that makes a difference with an album like this we worked hard on the mixes and, and to get the yeah. physical yeah now the physical stuff you know i would just go to my website just go to brianbeller.com b-r-y-a-n-b-e-l-l-e-r and there's a shop link there it actually goes to all these worlds it goes to yeah. my it goes to my uh my physical store in the usa it also there's a physical yeah. store in the uk which ships to europe inside the eu for now and uh right. and then it also links to the Bandcamp page and it links to itunes Sweet. and spotify so you can go to any place there but if you're considering buying the physical product yeah you get it from me it's, it works out best for both of us <laughs> cool sweet yeah awesome brian no, the time is safe.